Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. Today, we have two guests joining us. They are Liz Brown, who has a Bachelor's of Science degree with honors from the University of Tasmania, and Scott Carver, who's a disease ecologist at the University of Tasmania. They're here today to talk about Sarcoptes scabii, which is the pathogen that causes mange in animals. And in particular, they talked about the varied ways that it passes from host to host. It was a great chat, and so with no further ado, let's go straight to the interview. Thank you both very much for joining me today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having us. Okay, I was hoping we could get started with a brief introduction you know, to the pathogen in question, Sarcoptes scabii. Um, can you tell me a little bit about it? Uh, what does it do? What kind of species does it infect? Okay, so Sarcoptes scabii is the causative agent of the disease Sarcoptic mange in animals, but uh, that's known as scabies in humans. So it's a species of mite that burrows into the skin of its host and causes a range of clinical signs, such as hair loss, uh, skin thickening, uh, itching, and a range of other things, and ultimately can lead to death via like secondary infection, starvation, uh, emaciation, and other things like that. Uh, so that's the general background on the pathogen. It infects almost 150 species of mammals around the globe. So. It's one of the most uh, widespread diseases in wildlife and it has an expanding host range and is a priority concern for many species. Okay, so I take it I'm going to be itching at some point during this podcast the more that I think about this this terrible creature. Yeah, it's great for neuroses. I find I'm often like going like this while I'm going to be talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, we won't be using the video, so we won't have to see me kind of scratching on my arm. <laughs> um, you mentioned the expanding um, you know, host range of the species. Is that unusual? It, it probably depends on the type of pathogen you're talking about. Um, and... and uh, uh, for some emerging pathogens, uh, then you tend to see uh, expanding host ranges uh, and, and examples like that in places like North America include things like your bat white nose syndrome that has been introduced and it emerged across the country and formerly things like West Nile virus. And Zycoptic mange is the same sort of thing, but actually on a global scale. So it's a, a really a panzoonotic pathogen that's um, been spread around the world associated with European colonization across the globe uh, and just continues to have an expanding host range. And you, you mentioned in the article that this is one that um, may have spilled over from humans to animal populations rather than the other way around. We, we often hear about the, you know, the inverse of that, which is, um, you know, zoonotic spillover to humans, but this is the opposite. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. The spread of mange has been pretty much linked to the movement of humans and also their domestic animals and livestock. Uh, so, for example, in Australia, in marsupials such as the wombat, which is particularly susceptible to sarcoptic mange, this has been linked to humans coming to Australia and bringing uh, so their canids, such as dogs, and introduced foxes, and this has led to emergence of the pathogen within wombats. Okay, and so you know, does it affect animals differently in terms of the severity of disease? Is it you know less harmful in some versus others? Yeah, so some species, uh, particularly like. Well, immunocompromised humans, for starters, are more affected by scabies. But in terms of animals, uh, some species such as canids are particularly affected. Uh, so Sarcoptes uh, scabii causes uh, like hypersensitivity reactions within its host. Uh, so some of them, what we call the most severe form, which is crusted mange, can occur in a few species such as wombats and uh, other carnivores such as foxes. Uh, and 
it's not completely clear why this is different in different host species. Scott, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, yep. Um, so the hypersensitivity responses that Liz is sort of talking about, generally there's uh, four types of hypersensitivity responses. Um, animals have to pathogens. Uh, and, and you tend to see broadly that mammals infected by um, Cyclops AI display one of two of those, which one of them is a, a type one type hypersensitivity response, which is an inflammatory immune response. Uh, and this is uh, quite common in humans, um, often quite common in things like dogs uh, and a range of other species. And so you see a lot of sort of irritation and hair loss in those sorts of cases occurs through scratching um, hair off because of the sort of intense irritation that's associated with that. And, um, and then the other type of hypersensitivity response we see associated with this disease is what's called type 4 hypersensitivity, uh, which is an anti-inflammatory immune response. And that's where the mites really get away from the host's immune response. And you can get sort of thousands to millions of these mites developing on the host uh, and, and you get immune responses that lead to sort of what we call crusted mange disease, where you get a thickening of the epidermis, uh, and that can ultimately lead to sort of cracks and fissures um, uh, through that sort of thickened skin layer and secondary infections. And that's the most severe form of the disease, and that generally can lead to mortality, often not directly from the mite itself, but indirectly through a weakened host that has become susceptible to secondary infection. That's interesting. So let's talk now a little bit about, you know, transmission. Um, you know, how does this, uh, you know, how does mange travel between, uh, you know, individuals and then between populations? Is it, you know, um, animals brushing up against each other or is it sharing of, you know, um, den habitats or what, what's, what's kind of the dynamics of this, uh, of this disease? So Psychopathy scabii is transmitted uh, one of two ways. Oh, sorry. There's three different modes we describe it as. So first is direct transmission, where animals come in direct contact and mites, which roam on the skin of an infected host, can then transfer to a susceptible host. Uh, and this occurs in species that live in groups and have close contact. Um, Whereas in more solitary species, we see indirect transmission, sometimes called environmental transmission, where mites are transferred from an infected host to the environment where they can persist for a certain amount of time. And then when a susceptible host encounters these, they can uh, reattach to the, a new host and commence burrowing and then infect that host. And then the third mode, which we describe, is a mixture of these both. So this might occur in species which live in groups, but also live and use dens or uh, an environment that is suitable for mites to survive in the environment. So therefore, infected, I'm sorry, indirect transmission can occur. Okay, so let's take um, let's take examples of each of those, and, and you know, kind of com compare and contrast. And I'll uh, I'll leave it to you which ones we wind up discussing. Uh, but you know, what are what are kind of the species involved, and in, in how does that you know kind of um, relate to the transmission dynamics? Okay, so for direct transmission, uh, we have some examples of species that this is the primary method of transmission is uh, ibex, which live in herds and groups. So uh, in this environment, there is a lot more contact, which can lead to this direct transfer of mites. And 
this all sort of comes down to the population structuring and how big are the groups and also the density. Uh, another example of a species that is uh, where the primary mode is direct transmission is Shamwa. And these have the same sort of relationship where they live in groups and herds, but they have slightly less contact, um, but it's still direct transmission and is a density dependent relationship. Uh, so for indirect transmission, uh, species, we see this in species but that are more solitary. So our best example is the bare-nosed wombat in Australia. This wombat is particularly susceptible to sarcoptic mange and the primary mode of transmission is indirect because this species does not contact other individuals very frequently. But they do use burrows and this is how transmission occurs. So burrows have an suitable microclimate where Sarcopy scabii can survive off host. Wombats also do what we call asynchronous burrow switching, where one wombat may use multiple burrows and they switch and overlap in their use of burrows at different times. So therefore, infected wombats can deposit mites in a burrow and the susceptible wombat may then encounter that. And that's how uh, indirect transmission can occur in that system. And then finally, for both indirect and direct transmission occurring <clears throat> in one population, we have examples such as kit foxes. So they live in groups and packs, but they also use dens. So within this environment, there's a high chance of both direct transmission occurring between individuals, but also indirect transmission occurring within an, what we call, might call an infected environment, such as a den where mites might be able to survive with suitable conditions for this. Scott, do you want to add anything or? No, I think you've, uh, <clears throat> you've captured all those sort of different kinds of transmission scenarios and uh, the different hosts that uh, they go through. Um, other, other examples of hosts where we think that uh, there's predominantly uh, environmental transmission is things like uh, black bears in North America, particularly around the Pennsylvania region, they seem to be suffering sort of larger case numbers uh, at, at present times. And, uh, um, and and then just for a lot of other hosts, there's a, a little bit of uncertainty about the mechanisms of transmission. Uh, and the disease is really widespread. The, the Ibex and the chamois that Liz spoke about, they're uh, really uh, European sort of mountain goat species that have direct transmission. And then you see sort of similar mechanisms of transmission in some of your camelids in South America, such as your llama, your um, uh, vicuña, um, um, and your alpaca down there. Yeah, that's interesting. The black bear uh, example struck me because uh, for a little while back, there was a, a bit of a foo-for-a about, um, you know, some terrifying, you know, uh, animal that caught the attention of uh, cryptozoologists. And it, it turned out to just be a black bear, which had been, you know, badly affected by mange and um, was sporting no fur, and which is not a good look for a black bear, incidentally. No. And so one of the most sort of, um, I think, things that sort of grabs people about cyclic mange and actually makes it one of the most uh, interesting uh, diseases is, is that it's one of those sort of few pathogens infecting an animal that you can physically see. It's most, most pathogens that infect uh, an organism. Um, they may feel unwell. I don't know if you can um, get a sample of blood or some other sort of diagnostic sample, you can diagnose it. Um, <clears throat> but for the most part, you can't actually sort of see those infections. And, and this is sort of what makes Sarcopic Mange an interesting study system to work with, is that you can visually 
see these animals and their clinical signs usually associated with what we call alopecia, which is the loss of hair, um, and be able to diagnose them um, without having to actually approach the animal, without having to capture them. And so there's a lot of research that we're able to do um, by virtue of this sort of uh, physically obvious um, signs of disease. That's interesting. And you're leading into my next question, which is a very non-science, uh, non-science person question. But how do you study um, you know, this? How do you get us, how do you learn, you know, that, um, that sarcoptic mange is existing within, you know, the dens of a wombat or a, a black bear or, you know, being transmitted among, you know, kit foxes or coyotes from animal to animal? How do you, how do you find this out and, um, and how do you avoid them? Such a good question and such a, such a tricky answer. Uh, really, uh, I mean, one of the key characteristics is that it's a very well-described disease across lots of different host species around the world. So we know what uh, etiology looks like, so what the sort of the symptoms, the clinical, clinical types of symptoms uh, look like. And they're quite similar across lots of different host species. And uh, there are sort of gold standards of the way that you can diagnose um, this pathogen in this case. The sort of the gold standard diagnostic technique is to do uh, a scraping of the skin using a, essentially a scalpel blade and then uh, looking at that scraping under a microscope and you can see these microscopic mites actually sort of wriggling around underneath of that um, and that has very variation in how successful that diagnostic is uh, and uh, and because you've got these sort of relatively established techniques diagnosis usually happens uh, relatively readily uh, when you suspect it, um, uh, if you can get the animal in hand. Um, and uh, But you can still diagnose it with a degree of certainty from sort of observational sort of surveys as well. I would just add that uh, in terms of like measuring transmission and detecting transmission, that's sort of one of the key challenges in that field because it's quite hard to actually demonstrate transmission and doing like experimental transmissions a bit. Uh, well, they've definitely done um, transmission experiments in the past, but, you know, it's not that easy to do. So while writing this paper, one of the things that I found was that the mode of transmission was mainly just assumed. Um, it's often quite difficult to actually demonstrate for sure, like that it's direct transmission or it's indirect transmission or um, even more complicated when it's both direct and indirect transmission. What's the dominant mechanism there? And are they occurring simultaneously? And how do you show that is sort of one of the key challenges I found. Yeah, that, that does sound difficult. So, I mean, how do you begin to overcome that? You know, is it is it experimental or is it, you know, observational and you just kind of uh, you know, piece it all together? How does, that, how does that typically work? One of the things we have, uh, we know that there's some really good laboratory studies uh, with sarcoptic range. Um, uh, for the environmental sort of survival of the mice, there's some uh, old studies, but very good studies, looking at uh, sort of key climatic drivers of mite survival, which are uh, temperature and humidity, and and we understand about how the the survival time in terms of the number of days the mite can survive off a host and still infect into a host skin based on these conditions, and so we know these sort of optimal environment for these mites to survive um, off of a host uh, is cool temperatures and very high humidities. Uh, and that they can survive up to about 19 days in laboratory conditions. And, uh, and it's only relatively recently that people have been trying to apply that information into the field, particularly for den-using species, uh, to get some sort of estimates on how long mites might actually be 
surviving in the environment, which is what Liz did her honours research on, and I'm going to let her talk about now. Okay, a uh, bit of self-promotion. Um, so my research project that I did was about looking at the suitability of wombat burrows for environmental survival of Cycopteus scabii. So we measured the conditions within wombat burrows doing a few different things using ground penetrating radar and we also had a little robot that we drove into a few burrows. But ultimately what we were looking for was the information on the conditions within these burrows and then we used laboratory data to model how long mites could survive uh, in this environment. And then this is quite important information uh, specifically for bear-nosed wombats and has gone into the modelling um, side of things and a few other projects that the lab group is generally working on for like treatment of mange and also modelling the seasonality and how this affects disease spread in wombat populations. So it's, yeah, important information for understanding how the pathogen is might spread. So, so I think, James, uh, sort of a, a more general answer to your question, uh, um, trying to study transmission um, uh, in any animal for any pathogen, and particularly for this one, really involves... Uh, a sort of a meeting of lots of different disciplines and expertise, so uh, uh, including laboratory studies where you can sort of understand aspects about sort of um, the pathogen and its capacity to infect different host species um, and survive off of a host. Um, uh, it involves sort of uh, veterinary expertise in terms of diagnostic uh, diagnoses. Uh, it involves uh, ecological expertise in terms of sort of being able to sort of study how these animals sort of move around and interact with one another or interact with their environment. Uh, and, and it also involves sort of modelling expertise in the sense of being able to sort of bring together these various complexities into some sort of unifying sort of framework so that we can start to use these things to help us um, draw together all these lines of information to explain what we're seeing in nature. You know, very frequently we've heard recently about, you know, um, various pathogens being studied through, you know, genetics. Um, has that, you know, instrument been brought to bear uh, against this one? Uh, yeah, it has. It, uh, and we have have a really interesting emerging sort of picture that's coming out of that. So uh, one of our lines of evidence that Cyclopes scabii has the sort of European or sort of European Middle Eastern sort of um, origins is that, uh, when you look at the genetic structure of this mite, you tend to see it sort of separates out between sort of carnivores, uh, omnivores or herbivores and, um, and humans uh, in the sort of European uh, region. So if you look at microsatellite markers of these mites, uh, you can see these quite clear distinctive sort of blades of it. Um, but then when you move sort of out of Europe, uh, that breaks down, that relationship um, doesn't persist and you tend to see a much more of a mixture. In, that really suggests that probably that this might has been sort of taken from this area um, and spread around the world. And, and there are these sorts of amazing records in humans, uh, colonists moving to different areas that have signs of scabies. And, and even back sort of hundreds of years ago, you know, that there was sort of exceptionally good record uh, capacity to diagnose this mite even before uh, uh, microscopes were widely available. The symptoms were relatively well known. Um, and, and indeed, this was one of the first sort of properly diagnosed pathogenic agents of, of a human. Um, and of course, people take dogs with them all over the world. We, we know that well and truly, and, and dogs are particularly susceptible to sarcoptic mange. And it seems that sort of through these couple of mechanisms uh, that 
these mites have been able to spread all around these different places. And the mites themselves probably spilled over in many, many instances uh, to lots of different species and even within species in multiple instances. Um, and there are genetic lines of evidence for that as well. And, and it just really speaks to the capacity of this like tiny parasitic mite to really adapt to like vastly different animal or mammal species uh, um, and all of whom would have different sort of immune systems and uh, capacities to try and sort of manage this and that sort of thing. So it's really is such a remarkable parasite. Um, it isn't as easy to study the genetics as some other things like fast evolving viruses because um, um, because it because it doesn't change genetically as quickly uh, tracing its um, sort of um, genetic geography uh, is a little bit more tricky but um, but we are able to uh, get some good insights from available information that's fascinating and, and what's next for your research so our study species specifically is banner's wombat and so what's next for that was uh, the project on looking more specifically at the environmental transmission of this pathogen. Uh, and as I said before, estimating how long it can survive in burrows. And that goes a lot further into modelling. More broadly, for mange outside of uh, the Bernos Wombat, there's a lot of interesting research directions uh, based on transmission. So looking more broadly at indirect transmission in uh, black bears and uh, foxes and coyotes and other species that use dens or environments that may be suitable so just exploring that transmission pathway more broadly and I also think that in terms of direct transmission and species affected by that uh, there's a lot of interesting work that could be done in terms of how the population the groups are structured and how that impacts transmission so the sort of ideas of research directions but Scott yeah yeah uh, we're really uh on the tip of the iceberg for understanding so much about this um, pathogen, even though it's been around for uh, such a long period of time. And in fact, there's even references to uh, uh, to sarcoptic mange in biblical times uh, among people um, from Leviticus in the Bible. So it sort of has this sort of uh, really interesting sort of history in antiquity as well. Uh, one of the things that makes this disease, I guess, socially interesting to humans is the visually apparent signs of disease and seeing animals suffering from it. Uh, and, and in many cases, that also means that people want to try and do something about it. Uh, and for varying reasons, sometimes it's for game management, sometimes it's for animal conservation, sometimes it's for animal welfare. Uh, and, uh, and so there are attempts around the world uh, for people to try and control um, this disease uh, that happens in things like ibex, it happens in things like wombats, it's happening in things like black bears, uh, it's happening in South America and things like viconias. And the sort of mechanisms and the methods that people use to control this vary enormously around the world and, and probably the success of those do as well. So there's a really interesting research frontier in how you manage this like human introduced invasive pathogen across many different areas and across many different species. And there's probably at the moment no sort of unifying framework for that. And I think that's an interesting research direction going forward. Well, we'll certainly look forward to hearing more about that. But you just mentioned, you know, the, the human introduced element of this. And it occurred to me that we haven't really talked about 
um, you know, the role of scabies in human populations. So can we just chat like a little bit about, you know, its effects on people um, and its role as a public health issue? Yeah, scabies in humans is a massive public health problem across the globe. Uh, it, it's really worst in the sort of tropical and subtropical regions of the world. And, and there's possibly an economic component to that as well. Um, but these are uh, yeah, areas where uh, humans are frequently infected by this. And, uh, and it's among the 30 most prevalent human diseases still. So it's really quite up there. And, uh, and really in the last decade, the World Health Organization has recognized it as a neglected tropical disease requiring more research. And, um, uh, and it used to be more of a human health issue in sort of more temperate regions. Uh, um, it tends to be less, and that's possibly through sort of economic development in sort of westernised countries um, and improved sort of health systems that have led to better disease control in humans in those regions. Um, 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 and uh, and there's some ways to um, uh, to fill some of those gaps in those more tropical um, parts of the world. And we'll certainly hope that those gaps are filled soon. In the meantime, thank you both very much for joining me today. Fantastic. Thanks a lot, James. Thank you so much. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.